welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Thank you for your loyalty. Thank you for your support. And thank you for tuning in to this new episode of Healthcare Unfiltered. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Andrew Foy, who is a cardiologist in Pennsylvania. We are going to talk a little bit about cardiology and COVID-19, but we are going to spend the bulk of the interview about his other career. Apparently, Dr. Foy is a boxing promoter. Who said physicians can't have fun? Who says, who said cardiologists cannot have more than one career? So I was really intrigued by this. I actually knew about this by chance that Andrew is a boxing promoter. I'm like, oh my God, we need to get this guy on the show. We need to talk about how does a cardiologist become a boxer or a boxing promoter? Maybe I need to get into it. Look, in all transparency, I also was watching this um, uh, show on Netflix called Kingdom, which is about mixed martial arts. Rather intriguing show, pretty intense, but I was pretty fascinated by the boxing in the mixed martial arts world. So when I heard that Andrew is doing this, I'm like, I'm getting this guy on the show. We are talking about boxing, promoting, and a little bit of cardiology. Of course, the fun part of the interview is the boxing stuff, right? I mean, you don't care about cardiology. You know, we fix all of the problems in cardiology. And if there are any problems related to cardiology, you know it's all about COVID-19. So that's what Andrew's going to comment on. Okay, so I hope uh, you'll enjoy this uh, interview, this episode. I, I think it's a lot of fun to talk about uh, other aspects of the practitioner's careers, about uh, a physician's careers. And before I air the episode I taped with Dr. Andrew Foy, I would like to plug the show by asking you to find it on all podcast outlets. You can find this show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts at. Uh, make sure you write a brief review, uh, rate the show, subscribe to the show, and if you don't mind, refer a friend or a colleague to the show. I think it will be always fun to uh, refer a friend or a colleague to the show because if you don't, it means that you have no friends or colleagues and that is something you never want people to know about you. So do it and do it right and do it now. Okay, without further ado, Dr. Andrew Foy, exclusively on the Healthcare Unfiltered. All right, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in. This is really, uh, this is why I do the podcast for fun stuff. So um, I'm really excited to uh, be joined by Dr. Andrew Foy, who we have not met in person, although we both are looking forward to meeting in person uh, sometime, hopefully not in the too distant future. I've invited Andrew to the show. Uh, I met him through uh, social media and through various uh, mutual colleagues to talk a little bit about his academic career, but honestly, more importantly, about the non-academic career, because uh, who says that physicians can be fun, right? And who says physicians can't uh, do something outside of medicine? So uh, uh, you'll hear a lot about the boxing world, and, and, and we'll talk about that. We'll spend the majority of time on this, because frankly, that intrigues me a little bit more than cardiology. And as the host, I get to choose what intrigues me. 
Andrew, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you taking time. We're for context. We're taping this um, on Thursday, uh, February fourth. Right? It is February fourth, twenty twenty one. It's going to air a little bit in early March, so it'll be about four week delay. But I want to make sure the audience listen to this. I am. We're taping this, and I'm sipping a little bit of tea. And uh, you probably look like you're still in the office, but. Um, Appreciate maybe a little bit about you, Andrew. Uh, introduce yourself to listeners and and um, who don't know you, and uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, appreciate uh, you asking me to be on here tonight. I've I've enjoyed conversing with you on social media and our our group of colleagues. So I'm a general cardiologist, uh, assistant professor at uh, Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center, College of Medicine in um, Hershey Harrisburg area of Pennsylvania. I've been here pretty much my whole, my whole career. I went, I did my cardiology fellowship uh, at Penn State and then stayed on. I think I'm going on like my sixth or seventh, maybe sixth year now on, on faculty. So I spent about half my time uh, doing clinical medicine and then the other half of the time doing research and teaching. Had a career development award and some other smaller grants. I'm involved with some, as a co-investigator with some people on on some other external grants. But yeah, I'm, I'm chipping away. I'm doing the best doing the best I can in in the world of of academics, but uh, still trying to trying to make it. It's hard for me to describe myself as a researcher. I do a lot of different different things. Anything that that kind of interests me, I may try to figure out a way to study it using, using any number of, of approaches that are available, that are feasible. And I think it just kind of speaks to, to some of my broader interests, just, just as in terms of thinking scientifically and, and just addressing questions that are interesting to me in the field of cardiology and occasionally will we'll branch off into other uh, areas as well if it involves critical appraisal or something like that. Did you know that COVID-19 causes all the cardiac ailments in the world? I do. Um, I feel bad that Penn State is being part of the Big Ten. I feel like we're part of, of that, although I don't think it's Penn State specifically who is responsible for, for planting that seed. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that that's some of the hype that's been confused for, for good science throughout this pandemic. You actually, Andrew. I mean, you and uh, and a couple of other collaborators. You you did look at some of the literature on COVID nineteen, and you tried to do a critical appraisal of how good the papers uh, are in preparation for our interview. I want to tell you what I did before I got on the air with you. I went to PubMed.gov and I put in COVID nineteen in the search box. And I'm going to tell you, uh, you have to guess how many papers I got. Throw a number. So are these going to all, these are all officially peer reviewed and accepted yeah. at this point? These are indexed on PubMed. So you go to the search index, you put COVID-19, how many papers you think I got. By the way, there were no papers before January, 2020. Right, right. Yeah. I'm going to say 150,000. Oh, okay. Well, then I disappoint you. It's close to 100,000. 
Okay. $99,000. So, so tell me about that paper. I think you, you obviously you and John Mandrola and, and, and maybe a few others were very critical of the quality of paper. So help me understand what you did there. So it was actually the idea for this was um, with the lead author uh, on the paper. And he actually approached John through social media. Um, John, I think being more of a more of a public figure, certainly more than me, uh, is approached often by junior investigators who are kind of looking for him to collaborate and help them. I don't want to say just to put his name on the paper because that's not the case, but, but they want to see if, if he can help in a way and guide them to maybe getting something, getting something published. And I think, I think it's fair to say that the publishing model these days, I don't know if there's, if there's any credibility to this, but, but my belief is for people that have social media imprints, I do think that matters to editors because these people can get clicks onto their onto their stuff, particularly when they put it on social media. So I think that John gets approached a lot. And these guys had this idea to look at um, the speed from when a paper was actually submitted to the time that it was uh, accepted and published. And they were using a database that I had not been familiar with that basically indexed like every paper that's ever been published in peer review and indexed on PubMed. And it gives you the time from acceptance to, or the time from submission to the journal that it was published in to publication. And um, what they, and I guess they kind of had a sense that this was occurring. And I think all of us as academics who weren't publishing COVID papers probably got this sense that our, you know, the stuff that we were doing wasn't necessarily a priority for right or wrong. I mean, I mean it, it was, it was a, a different time and I can understand why you would prioritize COVID research over other, over other scientific research. But so they, they did this search and um, found that the, the time from submission to publication of the COVID papers, and it was like 10 days. Uh, which, as anybody that's that's regularly submits research, that's it's kind of insane. I mean, just to get the peer reviews back within twenty to thirty days to 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 do an editorial review, to send it out for critical revisions and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's not really feasible to think that they're they're really going through the entire vetting and peer review process. And again, I'm not, it's not my, I don't know whether I think it's right or wrong. I mean, I think there's reasons that you would want to publish faster in, a, in this sort of setting. But we also have seen the reversals that have occurred with COVID stuff, particularly from the observational non-randomized intervention studies. And then once it gets tested in an RCT, uh, we don't see any, any benefit. So anyway, these guys had this finding and they were trying to publish that as kind of their standalone paper. So they had sent it to John and John sent it to me. And I said, you know, this is, this is interesting. I said, but this doesn't really reach the level of, of research to me. I said, really what they're kind of inferring or they're interested in, in, in understanding is whether this rapid process of, of 
of publication is jeopardizing quality. And I said, and I'd honestly, I'd rather just study that directly than to infer it from, from time to publication. I said, so I think we, it, we can do this, but it has to be very systematic and we should be as rigorous as possible. Um, and so we put a methodology in place to, to kind of do this in a systematic way where we applied validated bias assessment tools to the individual studies. And we actually kind of matched these studies um, to controls in the same research journal uh, last year that were not COVID uh, related. And then we did the, the systematic bias assessment and found that in all study designs, um, with the exception of the RCTs, there was a, a significant difference in the number of domains that were susceptible to bias, like a striking difference, like 40% versus 90% sort of thing for the, for the non-COVID versus the COVID papers. Andrew, did you, um, did you look at all COVID papers or cardiology specifically? So, so the way they had chose to do it was that they were taking the top cited papers at the time that they did the review. And they basically just went down the list from one to whatever until we got 50 original research articles uh, that were also not modeling papers. And so one thing to, to mention about, about the rapidity of the publication process is a lot of what was being published early on was, was a lot of editorials. So you may not, it, it's hard to, to really get that indignant about editorials being published quickly. Once you got through the editorials and you get to the original investigations though, they were still being published very rapidly. And I wish I had the, the paper in front of me right now, I, I don't, but the difference in the altmetric score between the top cited COVID papers and their matched controls, it was like 250 versus nine or something like that. And the, num <laughs> and the number of citations was like, it was, I don't know, it was like a hundred versus three. I mean, it was just, it was amazing the difference in the COVID papers and the non-COVID papers. And I mean, I think it just, I think it goes to show how hype can really, can be dangerous in terms of, of trying to appraise the medical literature. And that's always been something that myself and John have tried to raise awareness for in cardiology. But you get, uh, you know, I mean, as uh, our friend Saurav Jaha says, it's the market, right? I mean, the market tells you that's what people want to read about. So then uh, that there's so much demand on it. And uh, so you're trying to accommodate that and the quality uh, gets affected. You, you and John do get beat down a lot on social media where you, when you actually raise concerns, um, about some of this, you, you, I well, John, John gets beat down a lot. I mean, I only have about 700, I have to be, I'm not a, I'm not like John. John, John nobody, is, nobody is like John. But. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, he's big time, but he does get beat down. Yeah, absolutely. 
He does. Yeah. I mean, he's gotten canceled about 10, 10 times. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've honestly lost track how often he, he got canceled. And he still, he still tries. John, I mean, John amazes me in the sense that he's able to approach it with, I'm not sure, I'm not sure of a word to use to describe it, but he's just like so non-threatening, aggressive, hostile, and he, and he just accepts pounding from people. And it's almost like, well, you know, thank you you know, please do it. He, he, he makes his points. And he, and by being able to do that, I think he's, he's an, an amazing voice. I mean, in cardiology, but, but just in medicine in general, I can't do it. I mean, no, I, I can't do it either. I, mean, <laughs> I, I get angry for him. Like I get, <laughs> I, I, I really get, I had him on the show. We talked about, I called it Mandrola gate. I mean, right. It, 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 I, I get too angry. He, um, he get beat down by people, and then he says, "You know, I bet if I meet you in person, we can enjoy a beer together." I'm like, "What? What? What's going on with this guy?" Yeah, but I, I mean, he's he. I think that's his gen. That's him. I mean, he's being genuine. He's just. I don't know. I mean, he he can do it. I can't. I can't. Yeah, yeah most people can't. Um, I want to pivot a little bit, but before I pivot, Andrew, I want to pivot to non-academic, non-cardiac stuff. I would, I would say the fun stuff. You know, through this pandemic, as, as a healthcare provider, as a cardiologist, as, as a citizen, what, what are your top three, four take-home points that you learned from this pandemic, the good and bad? Just, and then I want to move on to the fun stuff. It's a big, it's a big question, but I'm, I, 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 you're a very critical thinker from talking to you. And I really feel that you really can look at the bigger picture. I'm just curious for listeners, what would you tell them that you've learned? I'm, I'm not sure how much I've learned so much as I think it's, it, this has made some, some things more, more obvious to me. I think people's ability to, to give in to hype and to be scared by by hype. But see, even even saying that, I'm a little uncomfortable with it. So so one thing that I would say is that this this pandemic has has made it's made it very clear to me that people's personal levels of risk tolerance have a significant impact on not just medical decision-making, but how they think and make decisions in their entire lives. And so one thing that I've been interested in studying is psychology of decision-making. Um, and it's actually what I had my career development award for. And as part of it, studied something, it was a newly developed psychologic scale called the medical maximizer minimizer scale. And the theory behind this scale was that some people are naturally inclined to be medical minimizers. Other people are inclined to be maximizers. And the majority of people are somewhere in between. But that, that people's inclination to be a minimizer or a maximizer is not necessarily some irrational trait. It's just the way that, you know, to one person, you can say you have a, a risk of a heart attack in 30 days, it's 1%. And they go, well, do everything that you can possibly do to make 
that 1% less than 1%. And you can say it to another person and they can say 1%, you know, like that means I got a 99% chance that I'm going to be fine. Like I'll see you later. And then there's a lot of other people who are going to say, all right, 1% is not that bad. What are the trade-offs with, you know, what you're going to do to lower my risk? Because I can pretty much live with this, but if it's going to be something easy, maybe I'll do it. If not, you know, maybe I won't. So there's like this spectrum. And I think when it, when it came, when it comes to COVID, all, all the same issues are at play, but just on a much larger scale. I mean, just the, the notion of what is somebody's risk to go to dinner, you know, or to go to a park or to go to a restaurant or to, to do, to, to uh, interact with people. And I think it's harder to maybe put trans, the risk of transmission into that context. But when we talk about the risk of getting COVID and dying, I mean, we can put some pretty concrete numbers around that. And, and some people, I think, view that rationally as an unacceptable risk. Other people view it rationally as a totally acceptable risk. And then there's a lot of people that are in between. And it's like, well, you know, maybe what do we have to kind of give up to, to reduce the risk of that happening? So I feel like COVID has, to me, has highlighted that a lot. Um, and it's, it's also made me think about this issue of, of the psychological traits of risk tolerance and, and acceptance, and even around issues of politics, for example. I mean, it's just very interesting to me. I mean, are, are people on the on the right different from people on the left? You know, is there are there natural psych psychological tendencies? You know, that these are not, it's not so, it maybe isn't so kind of crass and partisan as people might think. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe we're kind of born in some sense to be to be right or left or center or something like that. And it's more psychology than anything else. So I, I may, it's made me think about a lot of that stuff, a lot. And one thing that I found concerning is just, hopefully not enough people listen to this so I could get canceled. And I don't, I mean- You're but, already canceled, don't worry, go ahead. You're but, already but I mean, it, it concerns me how easily people were willing to accept huge restrictions on personal freedoms and liberty in, in the name of, of increasing their safety or reducing their risk. Because, I, and I think that these are like big, big picture issues that have been at stake for hundreds of years. I mean, I think about the quote, you know, he who would, who would sacrifice liberty for safety deserves neither, right? I don't remember if it was Adams who said it or Franklin or, but, but it's kind of like, those are big, big picture things to me. And, you know, once you get, give them away so easily, you know, what kind of road does, does it set us down? And of course, I mean, we all give up, we all give up freedoms to some extent to live in a, in a civil society. It just feels like this is different and bigger, a lot different and bigger than anything else. I mean, I can accept that, that the bar closes at two in the morning, but it's harder to accept that the bar can't be open. Yeah. And that's that's tough for me personally.
Yeah, and that's probably a bigger topic that I would love to delve into uh, with. This is a topic that's good for a debate, honestly. I mean, that, I love civil debates. I love the idea that you can debate this topic with somebody and have a different opinions and still be friends and so forth. And and I miss that. You know, I think what, what, what COVID-19 taught me is it's very difficult to have a debate. There are certain topics I should never debate with anyone because uh, people are not accepting it. Uh, and we should really hopefully have another episode on that. That, that Yeah. And I would say for, for me, that's been the hardest thing to accept in all this is I, I feel like there's topics when it comes to COVID and the science of COVID that have been put off limits or that have some, have somehow become off limits. And it seems to me, if things that are genuine scientific questions, and even things that are genuine policy issues that affect us all become, become off limits, um, that's really, you know, that really concerns me. It really bothers me, particularly if it's in the, in the field of, of science. Yeah, absolutely. So, let, let's pivot a little bit. I want to try to pivot because you you have a different life uh, in, in kickboxing, uh, not kickboxing, in boxing and so forth. I want to talk about this because somehow this may have been affected also by the pandemic. So I think they are a little bit linked to, to each other in, in a sense. I've read a couple of the articles that were written about you that you wrote actually about what, what was going on and so forth. So first of all, let's back up a little bit. Tell me a little bit about this life. How did you get into it? Did it precede cardiology, post-cardiology? How did you get into boxing to start with? So sports were a big thing for me growing up. Um, and boxing was, was the fav my favorite sport that I participated in. Uh, I started boxing when I was 13. I, I always felt like I was a, a decent athlete, a good enough athlete, but I always, you know, wanted to be better and, and things like football frustrated me because I was kind of small, you know, like from a talent standpoint, I never had the most talent of anybody and I never had the most physical assets. And it was like, I just got exposed to the sport of boxing and it was like, here's an opportunity that like, if you're really gritty, you're going to be going up against people that are your size you know, typically the way amateur boxing is done is, is they're going to be around your age. They're going to be around your level of experience as, as you go through the sport. And it just, it just gave me an opportunity to, um, I, you know, I don't know. I, it was, it was just, once I got into it, I couldn't think about anything other than, than boxing. Was there anyone in your family, like any family member, friend, like would you affected by anybody or just like uh, naturally um, gravitated through boxing? Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds stupid, but I, I saw Rock, the original Rocky movie. You do uh, sound like a violent person, by the way. I mean, I can I can say you sound violent. So I understand. <laughs> I watched the, the original. Have you ever seen the original Rocky movie? A while back, though, I don't remember all the details. I was younger, much younger. So, so, I mean, I think it's like one of the the best movies, like ever. I mean, just it, it hits so many aspects of like the human spirit. But I just I felt like some connection with the character, and I was like, I got it, I got a box. And so, you know, I convinced my parents to let me go to a gym that was 
not that far from the house. They kind of, you know, we all kind of were like, well, it's just going to be lessons at first. And then, it, you know, and then it went from, well, let's, instead of just going on Saturday mornings, can you take me like a couple nights during the week and then every night during the week. And then I started driving and it, you know, it was over, but yeah. So it was, it was kind of like my sport growing up in high school. My family didn't like it. They didn't approve of me doing it. And that was actually tough. I mean, my parents are extremely supportive of me and my brothers and they're, they're amazing parents, but they, they were not supportive of boxing. Um, they didn't attend a lot of things. It, it just, it scared my mother. And I think, I think my father probably didn't bother him as much, but it made my mother so mad that I think he felt like if he participated or encouraged it in any sort of way that it was, you know, it was going to be a rough week for him. So, so I actually had it out with my parents throughout high school. And it's funny because I talk, you know, people say like, or, you know, of people that have problems with their parents in high school, like they're smoking or drinking or they're hanging out with the wrong crowd. I did everything right. I was, a, I was a good student. And all I, I, all I got in trouble for was going to the boxing gym at, after school was over and I would spend all day there. I mean, it's just what I, it's what I loved. I mean, I felt like an instant like kinship with, with the fighters and. So then, then what, then, then after high school, when you went to college and so forth, did you continue uh, the, the sports? No, not really. So, so I, in high school, um, I also got into running pretty heavily track and field and cross country. And for whatever reason, once I kind of made the decision that I was going to go to college and where I was going to go to college, I was doing track and cross country there. And I just kind of put it out of my head that I wasn't going to continue to try to compete in boxing. And yeah, so, but I still did. I mean, I went to some gyms around the area where I went to college, which was, um, in Collegeville, Pennsylvania, not a whole lot of boxing in Collegeville, Pennsylvania, but there was actually one, one gym and that wasn't too far away. But so, yeah, so I kind of just got out of the sport in terms of participating in it, but, but continued to stay a huge fan as, as a participant in the sport. I also loved it as a fan, my whole, the whole time I was involved and I always stayed a fan. So then you, you stopped participating, but you got into, I don't know, is it coaching, promoting? Like what, what how did you stay, you, you started doing something completely different. How did you get into that? Yeah, so, there, so that, there was like a 15, 20 year gap. So when I was, uh, when I started working at Penn State, after I had finished my fellowship, I was, um, so like my first year as an attending maybe. And um, at this at this point, I was totally away from the sport in any other capacity other than I watched it on television and I would occasionally go to live, live bouts like a couple times a year. So that was the extent of my involvement. Just one day, randomly, I walked out of my office. There was a Patriot News sitting on um, the administrative assistant's desk and the front page picture was, was um, a guy holding punch mitts for a little kid in what looked like a parking lot. And the title of the article was called They Need a Place to Belong. And it was about a gym in Harrisburg. And Harrisburg is a 
kind of a rough city that just you know really couldn't uh, keep its doors open because of financial reasons. And so I uh, reached out through that article. I reached out to the gym owner um, and just wanted to set up a way to make like monthly contributions to basically just donate to the gym so that the gym could stay open. I'm, I'm not a religious person, so there wasn't really anything that I was doing charitably. So it was just something that I wanted to do in that, in that regard. And so I started doing that and I got friendly with, with a couple of the trainers at the gym. One thing led to another, I started training again. And, um, I was thinking I was going to maybe come back. I was going to fight masters and compete. And the, the trainers at the gym knew I was a physician. They knew that I was donating, you know, a decent amount of money to the gym. And uh, it was kind of out of the blue that they approached me one day about providing financial backing to do a show in Harrisburg. Cause it really hadn't been one for like five years or so, maybe three or five years. And, and I said, yeah, and that was it. And then everything just snowballed from there. So, so what does that mean? Like when they want financial backing for a show, so does this mean you have to pick the boxers? How do you, do you advertise for the box? Like what, what, how do you find who's fighting who? How, how does that work? <laughs> well, so what I thought that they meant, because I had never thought about boxing from promoting it before. I had only experienced it as a fighter and then as a fan. Um, and as a fighter, as an amateur. So I didn't, you know, I, I was a pro. If there was guys in the gym that I trained with, I'd sometimes go and they'd let me work their corner and stuff like that as like the third man. But that, I never thought about it from, from, a, from a, that standpoint. And um, I thought what it meant was that I needed to get what's called a promoter's bond. So a promoter's bond is something that you have to have if you're promoting a show and it's basically an insurance bond. And so it says if there's any, if, if let's say you have $60,000 worth of expenses for the event and you only make $10,000 at the door, a lot of promoters just don't pay. Right. So you said you watched that show kingdom and there's, you know, there's like the promoter that they give crap to because he doesn't, he doesn't pay. So that happens. Um, and so you have to get the promoter bond. And essentially, if you can't pay, your, your bond gets called up and the bond pays. And you lose your license, but at least everybody gets, gets paid. And to get the promoter's bond, you have to have some financial um, soundness to you. And so what they were asking me to do was get the promoter's bond. So I did. And then nothing else was getting taken care of. And so it just, it's hard to explain to people like what promoting a boxing event is, but all, all I can, can say is like, it's basically like planning a wedding, all the, but with probably like 10 times more moving parts, you're doing everything. Uh, you're, you're setting up the fights, you're paying all of the officials, uh, you're paying for the venue, you're paying for all, all your advertising, your marketing. I mean, every, every cost involved with the event uh, you're paying. And then the hope is that your ticket sales will be enough. So you make a little, make a little money. 
choose the how do you choose the fighters like how do you choose who's fighting who typically promoters will either work within like a location so being in Harrisburg I was working with mostly Harrisburg based professionals um, at the time and then in terms of finding who they would fight you pretty much have to contact other fighters trainers managers and see if they'll accept the fight at and then it's a negotiation that's involved so the so the fights have to be approved by the state athletic commissioner and if they're approved by the state athletic commissioner typically that's when as a promoter or a matchmaker or an agent you'll approach the other side and see if they'll fight now sometimes you might have to go through like five or ten of uh, possibilities to to find somebody that is going to be acceptable to everyone so there's the fighters that are your local fighters you can call them your a-side fighters and the idea when you promote these local shows is that the a-side fighters are the attraction they're going to be the ones that sell the ticket sales often the tickets are sold directly by the fighters to people who want to come see them fight and then they pay the promoter at like the weigh-in. So those, those would be like your attraction. And then the B side, what it's called, are the fighters who are being brought in to, to fight the A side. Um, typically for local promotions in states with well-run athletic commissions, then fights will be pretty even because uh, the state athletic commission will not allow mismatches. But in some places in the country where the regulation is not as good, you can have pretty significant mismatches. But, but even in a well-regulated state like Pennsylvania, you always are trying for the B-side guy to be a little disadvantaged compared to the A-side guy. So it's not fixed in any way. But, when you, but for these smaller local events, usually the A-side fighter has a little bit of an advantage. And there's no guarantee that the A-side fighters, the guys that you're counting on to, to sell your tickets, will agree to fight the fight unless you get them the opponent that they want. So it's a very, it's something that kind of sounds easy and I thought it would not be very hard. And it's really the, the entire kind of crux of whether these shows work or not. What, what's a, that's maybe a silly question. I've never been to a boxing uh, match live, but you have to go. I, I have. Well, now you have to go. <laughs> I, so because I want to go, what, what's the ticket price? Like, what are we just talking about? Just uh, I presume so it, the seat it, is. Yeah, so it depends. So at, on a at a local show, um, what we call like a club show, meaning it wasn't going to be televised on network television. Probably general admission seats might be like twenty. And then ringside seats or seats that are actually, you know, not just seat yourself might be anywhere from like 50 to 125 bucks. Okay. And, and then, venues are usually smaller. So that you're typically looking at crowds of maybe 500 to, to 1500 people at most. Andrew, that's a lot. What do you mean it's small? Well, I mean, if you're comparing it to like NFL, it's small. Oh, yeah. But how, how do you get, how do you get then televised? Like, do you, um, do you have a marketing person? Like, do you, do you call the networks and say, Hey, I've got uh, this guy. How do you get that? 
So typically promoters, um, if they're kind of reputable and established promoters, uh, will have relationships with network executives. Uh, the company that I'm with now, Kings Promotions, you know, we have good relationships with, with people at Showtime and indirectly with people at Fox, uh, which is how we're able to get our fighters on televised shows. But now though, I mean, really there's only two, there's, o- there's really only two networks that, that cover boxing. And in once um, ESPN and they have an exclusive contract with a promotional company called top rank. So all of the fights that ESPN does are, are through top rank and then Fox and also Showtime have kind of an exclusive, not exclusive, but they work with, with a company called premier boxing champions. Now premier boxing champions isn't a promoter. So they work with other promoters like the company that I'm involved with. And, and a lot of, you know, whether you get on television or not just has to do with the talent of the, of the fighters. Yeah. Most part. So here you are, you're getting your first promotional um, boxing. Uh, did everything go smooth? Can you go back? How many years ago are we talking, by the way, the first time you've done, because uh, I, you know, uh, and, and what, you know, take us through down memory lane, maybe uh, what happened the first time around? Any memory of how that went? Oh, it was like, it was a whirlwind. I mean, the whole thing was just, um, just from the sense of like, I was, I was probably spending like eight to 10 hours a day on the event because I couldn't get any of the fights matched. And then once the fights were matched, guys kept pulling out. Um, so that was like a nightmare. We started with the idea of doing like a 12 fight card and we ended up having four fights and we had like nine fights five days before the event, five fights fell out the week of the event. Yeah. It was, it was just total learn as you go. Like I didn't have, I was, I was just trying to figure it out. I had the state athletic commissioner was like, totally up my ass. I think he thought I was just some idiot who thought I was going to get rich quick. Yeah. I, I, I know he thought I was just some idiot doctor who thought I could like get rich quick promoting boxing, which was had, that was not my intention at all. I had no intention of making money. I just didn't want to lose money. Um, and I did care about helping these local fighters. And I, I really thought that a few of them had futures in the sport you know, when it was all said and done, I, the event was a good event. You know, it was covered. It was covered well in the local press. I think I lost like fifteen or twenty thousand dollars and considered it a great, like a win. Based, you know, based on what I learned from that event and that got some momentum. The next event that I did was was about three months later, um, and it was actually the only time before I joined the new company I'm with that I ever made money promoting a boxing event, made $10,000, probably, you know, put in thousands of hours of work, uh, to make, to make $10,000. And I never on an individual event made, made money again. Wow. Had, Had some sponsors for that fight. Um, had some support from the local County commission, 
and just uh, had a couple fighters on the show that really were big uh, ticket sellers and things kind of fell into place and, and did pretty well on it. But, and then I did another, I think six shows in the course of like two years um, and kind of got a, a reputation in the area as, as being somebody that was doing something from a promotional standpoint. Um, but the more, I mean, the more and more shows I did, I, I just got really worn down. I mean, it was, I was doing it totally by myself. And at some point, like your, your like your ability to want to continue to be like charitable and just enjoy watching these kids, you know, attain some, attain some success and maybe see them go somewhere. Kind of the joy of that ran out. You get burned out. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, I got burned out. Um, a fighter who I got pretty close with, I was actually like training him. We had a lot of fun. He was, in a, he was older and it got, it got pretty clear to me that he needed to retire. And um, I think when, when he retired, my desire to like promote individually, because I, I got to the point where I was promoting shows just because I wanted to see him do well. It was important for me that he felt like he had, he had actually achieved something in the sport. I mean, he was kind of a journeyman fighter. You know, he, he was just, to me, he was just the ideal fighter, everything that you'd want a, a fighter to be, but just didn't have, from the outside looking in, a very good career. And um, I, I wanted him to be able to, at the end of the day, feel proud of, of what he did. And so that was a big driving force for me. And he did some, some really what I thought were great things. Um, but it was obvious he had to hang it up. And it, my desire to just keep pushing as like the sole promoter was, it was gone at that point. So how much, how much time do you spend now doing this? I mean, it, it's hard to believe you're a full-time cardiologist, you, you know, at, at, at an academic center, you do teaching, research, take care of patients. How, how, I mean, how are you dividing your time? Part of the reason that I ended up merging my company uh, with King's Promotions was because I didn't, I didn't want to do it full-time anymore. Um, I wanted to still be involved, but I wanted it to be more on my terms. And I felt like, yeah. So when I, when I merged my company with King's promotions, uh, I, I stepped back big time. I mean, I probably only spend, you know, six to 10 hours a week now. And, the, and what I do is what I kind of like to do. Um, I actually taught myself Photoshop. So I do all of our, I do a lot of our artwork and stuff like that. Oh, that's great. It's really just something that I enjoy doing. So I do like our promotional artwork and, and that sort of stuff. But for the most part, uh, my partner, who's a lifelong boxing guy, he's, he's done everything in the sport. I mean, this is his soul. It's his career. So, I mean, this, he, he pretty much runs the daily operations. How was the business affected with the COVID-19? I mean, like over the past year, um, <laughs> How, how would you, can you comment on that? Yeah. I mean, just the general landscape of boxing was hurt, was hurt a lot. I mean, probably the number of professional shows in the country 
it's like maybe 5% of what it was prior to the pandemic. Look, the, the, the thing that's hurt most is, is the, is the local shows. And I consider it to be that for that to kind of be like the farm system of boxing. So you're still seeing boxing at the top and on all the networks and they're able to do it without fans. And we've actually been involved with that a lot and it's been pretty good from a financial standpoint, but um, for the fighters, the guys on their way up, especially if they're not signed to if they're not signed to the top promoters or they don't, they're the networks aren't interested in them. Uh, they're just not getting any fights. So I think when this is all said and done, I mean, we're going to be left with like a farm system, so to speak, that's, that's really depleted. Um, and that's going to have to be built back up over the course of a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people, you know, you're, when you watch fights on TV, you see guys that have 15, 20, 25, 30 fights to get to that point. I mean, they do most of their, of their careers spent off network. Uh, it's spent on these club shows. It's spent at these, these lower level uh, events to get to the point where they're at that level. So those are the guys that have been, and girls that have been hurt by this uh, the most. Yeah. And I got you, you know, I, I got you to watch kingdom, which is a, a show on Netflix on uh, mixed martial arts, which fascinated me. Honestly, I thought I wasn't going to like it. And then I started watching it. I was just so intrigued by the intensity, the training. I mean, people just really into this. And I think I got you to watch it. How do you compare the show, you know, which is different than boxing, but somewhat similar to what you see in real life? I'm curious because you can probably give me a little bit more of a sense of the realistic, the reality of the situation. Yeah, I mean, well, so for one, I've, not, I've never promoted uh, MMA. So it is, it is different from boxing. It's, but a lot of how it's regulated is quite similar through the state athletic commissions and whatnot. Boxing and MMA are definitely different cultures. Like the sport, the cultures of the sports are different. And I think you even see that a little bit in some of the characters. Like when I watch the characters in Kingdom, I can think of MMA fighters I know because MMA guys moonlight in boxing a lot. Boxers don't moonlight in MMA, uh, but MMA guys moonlight in boxing a lot. They usually lose, but it's a way for them to make some money. They work on like they're striking and um, they stay active. But like the culture of what an MMA fighter is, is, is definitely different. Like the partying, the drugs, the drinking, you see a lot of that. That, that's not really something that's part of the culture of boxing. Um, and a lot of boxers don't, even as they're younger and they might be young and dumb and stupid and doing a lot of things they shouldn't, usually drugs and alcohol isn't a big issue in, in boxing. Um, and you see that a lot in, more in MMA, I think. In terms of like how the promotions go, the relationship that you see between the promoters and like the trainers, for example, how there's that friction there. That's real. I mean, there's the, always friction between everybody thinks the promoter is out to get them. And the promoter thinks that everybody is just trying to screw them too. So 
That, that like two-way street that exists is real. Um, but the way that you see these fights getting made in Kingdom, that's not real. Uh, it's way harder than that. Like it never just, you know, you show up and somebody says, I got this opponent. What do you think? Yeah, we'll take it. No, it never happens like that. I mean, it's always, it's always haggling back and forth. It's somebody, everybody has to think about it, you know, for three or four days before they make a decision. As the promoter, you're breathing down their neck saying, if you don't sign the contract, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be good. So that kind of friction is, is real, but it's, it's way worse in real life than I think in the show. But I think that, I mean, I love it. I mean, I, I think the show is, is great. Yeah, look at this. We, look at us getting free advertising to Kingdom. Uh, um, <laughs> Andrew, this was really a lot of fun. I, I learned so much about cardiology and what you're doing, about uh, some of the work that you're doing, as well as the outside work. And like I said, who said cardiologists or physicians can't have outside uh, work um, and activities. Anything I should have asked you about? Anything you want to leave listeners with? I just want to make sure that, I don't know, there's a, to me, it's very intriguing to see a completely non-medical related anything. I mean, boxing has nothing to do with uh, medicine and uh, you're spending a lot of time. Six to 10 hours a week is still a lot of time. Anything you want to leave listeners with or tell them about? Oh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, it's interesting to me. One of the things I was worried about earlier in my career when I got into boxing was, boy, what if I don't really want my job finding out about this, but it was kind of inevitable that that was going to happen. And it happened pretty quickly because, because there's press involved in pro sports and people wanted to, to like talk about and write about this professional event that was occurring. Um, but what I've, I've found um, is that it hasn't, it hasn't hurt me in any way. If anything, it's just made people kind of intrigued. I do care a lot about the safety of the fighters, and that's always can be a tense topic. But I've found a lot of physicians who've been willing to, like, engage and to help um, in terms of, of medicals and things like that. Because one thing that probably you don't – most people don't realize – I mean, I really haven't met a boxer yet with health insurance. Um, and so all of the testing that's needed for them to get approved for these bouts has to get paid by the promoter or them out of their pocket or their manager. And that never happens. So the promoters pay. And, and so that, that's a lot of cost. So we have to find physicians and healthcare providers who are willing to work with us. And I've found a lot of willingness to do that, but but even at the level of, of my university and people in administration, I've gotten a lot of support. People think it's a cool thing. And yeah, that, that was kind of a surprise to me. I mean, I, I was afraid that, that I'd get kind of uh, marginalized for that, but it hasn't really happened. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that you would get afraid, but uh, to me, it's, it's, very, it's very honestly admirable. And obviously, I was intrigued as well. And that's why I invited you to the show. I, I, I wanted to learn more about it. And, and I hope listeners really appreciate um, all what you're doing and, and, and learned a little bit more of a different side of who you are. Now, my goal is to make sure that this interview leads to your social media uh, ascend. <laughs> ascend. Well, cool. that, would be, that would be something. Um, no, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could handle being somebody at your level, you know, or even 
my level, I have no level. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I still am too much of a of a pugilist at the end of the day, and you can only spar, you can only verbally spar so much um, before. Yeah, I just I should I just leave it at that. Yeah, let's leave it at that because you know you already got canceled seven times. Let's not <laughs> like you know, you know. All right, Andrew. Look, thank you so much. I know it's getting a little bit too late in the East Coast. We'll we'll air this sometime in March. I really appreciate you taking the time. I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for having me. It was nice to finally meet you face to face. Okay, folks, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. I enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed getting to know Andrew very well. And social media is what got me to meet Dr. Foy. And this is really the advantages or the bright side of social media. Pretty much short of that, social media so far has become awful. Okay, well, maybe, let's see. Awful maybe is a little bit of an exaggeration. So about 90% awful. Okay. That's really my assessment of social media over the past 12 months. But at least I got to meet Dr. Foy and I knew about his career and that's why we have this episode. So appreciate your tuning in. I hope you had fun and you enjoyed learning uh, about boxing and promoting and just a lot of fun. Uh, please rate the show, subscribe to the show and refer a friend or a colleague. Give the show the number of stars you believe the show deserves. Let me know how you think I'm doing. I'm always open for, to suggestions or ideas. You can direct message me on Twitter, at Shadi Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. Or you can send me an email to Shadi Nabhan, O-O at Outlook.com. You can visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. And let me know any ideas or any suggestions for future episodes and future guests. Okay. But before I let you go, we just aired an episode about boxing. So I'm going to leave you with a quote from Muhammad Ali. Very fitting. Muhammad Ali said, I hated every minute of training. But I said, don't quit. Suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. Until next time, take care.